Is, so is there a difference between the s- subscription podcast and uh, what's on your website? So on my website is the general podcast that everybody listens to. Those are the long episodes and everything. And the subscription thing is something I started this month. Mm-hmm. And the idea is that people who support my work every month, I'm trying to use it in different interesting ways with them. I think of them as like a focus group, as my top listeners and readers. So I want to do some, play some games, experiment with a few things. So I try stuff like, like I write stories around my sneaky art and the kind of experience I'm having. So I'm starting to release monologues. So they're not conversations, but I sort of talk about what I was doing at that moment, why I made the sketch, what I was thinking about. And I add that as a little commentary on the art that I made. Right. Another thing that I do is, uh, which I've been doing before in the form of uh, writing, and now I'll also start recording, is that I add a bonus commentary in the sense that sometimes I speak with guests who are super interesting and they go down some really cool tangents that I don't uh, broach at the time. But it leads me when I'm editing, I'm thinking about it, and then I end up researching stuff. So, for example, I spoke to this guy in London called George Butler, and he's a war illustrator. Yeah, yeah. Right. So I was, we spoke about so many cool things. And afterwards, I, and the reason I spoke with him, but also afterwards, I was really intrigued by war reportage. So I wrote this whole piece after doing some research about how it started and the history of the whole thing. So that's another thing that I'm going to release an audio form for paying subscribers. So it becomes a nice way for me to offer them something new from things that I'm doing nonetheless because of my own interests. Mm-hmm. And I get to sort of practice taking those interests to a finished product with them. Yeah, that's cool. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Good incentive. Yeah, like I, I only subscribe to one podcast. It's uh, it's Mysterious Universe. It's two, uh, two Australian guys that just like talk about the, the paranormal and like high strangeness. And yeah, so they have a free one hour edition where they like interview somebody or do a feature and then two hours bonus for subscribers of just like, crazy tangents of like insane <laughs> stuff and it's uh yeah, yeah. It's, it's 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 enticing to get two two extra hours of content it's nice right that's that's really cool I, like i've thought about that but i already do such long conversations yeah that i wonder it helps, if it's it helps them because there's there's two people right so they're yeah. having a, an exchange but yeah if, if, it, if it was one person for for that right. amount of time it's yeah maybe a, a little hard on the ears <laughs> depending <laughs> yeah. on the content yeah yeah, I, I I used to listen to this podcast called Stuff You Should Know. And oh, that cool. was also yeah, two know. guys talking to each other. And yeah, it's way easier to get let the time go by if you're talk if you're vibing off each yeah. other. Yeah, it's fun. Yeah, my like podcast listening um has been significantly reduced since working from home. Cause I used to listen like on my way to and from work, mm-hmm. business trips, airplanes, all that good stuff. Yeah. Now I'm just like stuck on zoom marathons from my from my home studio and it's yeah (laughs) do you have a lot of meetings oh yeah yeah crazy amount of meetings yeah that's really exhausting to me like the idea so i'm doing this conversation with you but this will ruin me for the next four days i will not be able to speak with anyone because (laughs) i just i have such a low capacity for talking with people yeah oh man nishan so so i i do like four fourteen hour straight days of zoom sometimes oh god you know we've got clients uh clients 
in LA working and so like West Coast clients, uh, East Coast time zone. So I'm working like East Coast time and then getting on calls with the clients during Pacific time. Right. So until, 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 well, you're, you're, you're out, you're out West too. Right. So like until you're five right, o'clock, yeah. so my like seven or eight. Right. Yeah. yeah. Uh, that is brutal. Yeah. It's a little, it's a little hard sometimes, especially like, yeah, when you're used to performing artwork to just be talking and talking and talking. <laughs> right. For a short time, I, I lived in the Netherlands for a bit. I was a PhD student there and we were doing this research project with Chicago so it was like a it was like a 7 hour difference or 8 hour difference and we used to chat with them on video at 4 p.m. in the in at a dutch time and it would be right the start of the morning for them so they'd be super energetic and have all these ideas and things to throw at us and we were at the end of our day and we just wanted to finish the conversation yeah no i i, I feel you on that one as well Um, so you, you, you self-published your book. I thought, I thought it was um, with a publisher. No. So uh, I was in Wisconsin and it's a, it's a book about a small town and I was living in a small town. So I spoke to a couple of literary agents about it. And my initial idea was that I would need to have it traditionally published and I'd never considered self-publishing. But I spoke to a literary agent about uh, what I wanted to do. And she asked me to formulate a nonfiction book proposal. So I Googled what that is, how it works, what are the things that go into it. And I wrote it all out. And in the process, I shared it with her and then she got back to me. But in the process of writing it out, I sort of argued myself into independent publishing. And one of the reasons was that I was thinking about the incentives of a traditional publisher and how they absolutely don't align with what I want to do. So I want to make a book about a small town in Wisconsin, and I cannot make an effective argument for how this book will sell more than 2000 copies. So I can't see why a traditional publisher who is certainly not in Wisconsin, who's probably in Minnesota or in, uh, in Chicago, why would they care about this little town of 60,000 people and art about that little town? But, uh, that doesn't make the book pointless or it doesn't make the things I want from it pointless. So I had a list in writing this book proposal of the things that I wanted from making this book. Uh, this These creative exercises I wanted to take, again, which would be subject to editing if it was a traditional book because they would try to fit it into their economic requirements and then that would change. Maybe I would be asked to not talk about certain things or not draw certain things or not or talk about the... A quote unquote immigrant experience in a more explicit way in order to appeal to a wider audience and I just didn't want to play those uh, games I wanted to do what I wanted to do and then finally another reason was the turnaround time I just figured that if I go the traditional route and the agent I was speaking to also said the same that it's going to take a couple of years for it to come out and being an immigrant in the US you never know what's going to happen the next year with you so you can't plan you can't plan life two, three years ahead. And I didn't have the patience to do it anyway. I wanted a book. I decided to make a book uh, after the summer of 2018 when I'd held, when I'd kept a, an, a, a stall in the farmer's market to sell prints of my drawings every Saturday of summer. And at the end, I decided I wanted a book for the next summer's market. And that wasn't going to happen in the traditional path. It would just simply take too much time. 
So I wanted to have it done. I was recommended an independent press to go to in uh, like 90 miles away from us. And I really love that I did that. Like it was a financial bet to make. There's an invest. So there's an investment, but they got me in touch with a designer. They got me in touch with uh, somebody to, there weren't many words. So there wasn't much to edit, but somebody to put it all together, somebody to proofread whatever I wrote, the little I wrote. And the printers and everything like that was taken, like they got me in touch with people, but I was able to take all these decisions around it. A small press rather than a big. Right. So I was able to take these decisions around exactly how I wanted it to look. So the fact that it's a hardcover book, which lays flat on your table so that you can see the the two page spread drawings was a conscious decision on my part that I wanted to open out and lay flat on a coffee table. And how many pages it has, the quality of the page is the size of the book. All of those things were decisions I was able to take myself and then sign off on them and have them happen and then see how that plays with my audience because I sold it in person at the farmer's market. So every day I would, every Saturday I would meet dozens of people on their way to buy groceries and bread and they would stop and look at my books and someone would buy it and I would in real time understand which page moved them, which page turned them into a customer and why they bought it because often they tell me why they bought it. So I learned so many things from doing it and I just loved doing it. And that's that's kind of what I'm also going to be doing now with another book about Vancouver. Awesome. Yeah, I can't wait. No, it's, it's yeah, that, that's super fun. I'm jealous that you got to experience the people buying it and what for what reason. That's something that I, I didn't uh, get a chance to experience doing everything virtually. Yeah. And yeah, you're, you're right though. I did the same thing. I went like, I don't know much about publishing, but I know enough based on the working in commercial art through animation, what, um, what happens when someone does something independently versus when a small studio is involved and when a big studio is involved and it's, it just doesn't really go well (laughs) for, for when you're very uh, creatively particular about what you want. And also for me, you know, a subject like Palestine is 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 very difficult to to get people on board with. You know, it's 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 a subject that, like I was saying before, people want to ignore and not touch and pretend it's not happening. It's hard to get a publisher behind, and also um, I didn't want to make this a, a commercial piece. I wanted to make it a an art project. You know, limited run, signed and dated. Every detail is is designed. Um, like even, I don't know if you, no one, no one's commented on, on on noticing this yet, and I haven't really like made it made it a public uh, statement or anything. But the book, so the cover color, the the white pages, the black um, end sheets, and the red. Um, yeah, the, yeah, it's the I, map colors, uh, flag colors. Yeah, the flag colors of Palestine. Yeah, and that's uh, so like details like that. I'm like, I'm not. I'm not going to be able to make a charitable donation from the profits of this if I if I go through a publisher and and not to mention I'm like I I don't know if there's an audience for it I don't know if I'll sell anything and to this day I don't know because I don't know if I sold I only did 230 copies and I don't know why they sold out whether it's because um whether it's the art or the demand or whether whether having a limited supply led to people pulling the trigger quicker or because it's a charitable item or because it's who knows, you know, I'll, I'll never, I'll never know these things. Cause um, 
not too many people will will write to you and tell you that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that that's true. But uh, I think all of those factors do really interesting things. So we have kind of reached this point in the in what's now called the creator economy, where artificial artificial or uh, voluntary scarcity it really helps with the value of a product. So right. if this was just a book which and which someone thought they can always buy at their Barnes and Noble. You might, I mean, surely you would have had more than 200 sales by now, but those same people who bought it from you might not have bought it with the same uh, attention, with the same enthusiasm and the same promptness that they did because it's a limited edition work. Yeah. And what's also happened and what was really interesting to me with my self-publishing experience was how the, the financials play out if you are making something that people believe is a limited edition product that you have crafted by yourself. So again, we come to this thing about a uh, big budget versus small budget or uh, in a crass way to say corporate versus independent, not corporate is not the right word, but just simply an organization versus some an independent singular person executing their vision. Yeah, like committee-based decisions versus individual. Creative. Right, and the things that we've come to value because we see so many committee-based decisions now in, in all the media we consume. So there's this disprop- like well-earned but very sudden surge in value for things that are individually created. And with the warts and all, it's not perfect and that's what makes it real. So I, I found that it works super to your benefit. Like I broke even on all my expenses within a month of selling my book. Lucky. And I still hold a few copies. I don't sell it very, uh, uh, I don't, I'm not very enthusiastic about getting rid of them because it's mine. It's my first and it's going to appreciate value over time. So I'm going to hold on to them until they're worth maybe twice as much. And yeah. then it'll be fun to sell it in a few years. Like this is the first book I made. So these these games were not previously possible for individual creators to play but they're becoming possible now and it's a lot of fun to be part of them mm-hmm. yeah I'm, I'm glad to hear you broke even <laughs> yeah oh yes it's and every sale i make now the all, all of the money is mine so i'm incentivized to care about this book for years and years afterwards it's i find the difference between a lot of my uh, colleagues in art as well as in comics for example who've uh, traditionally published works is that the turnaround time is so long that they've uh, dissociated mentally from the project and they're sort of revisiting it by the time the book releases. And secondly, they never hear about the royalties again. So they don't feel that, like they don't want to talk about it two months later, three months. What's going to keep them talking about it? It's not really doing them a direct, measurable, tangible benefit that they can see in their in their lives. So... Uh, this is something that, again, independent publishing, I think, has given me. It's I always get the kick out of selling a book just like I did the first month that it came out. Right. Yeah. No, well said. Well said. Yeah, it's fun. Yeah, I, I agree. It's uh, we got to we got to keep doing it. It's now, now's now's a good time for it, especially when you when you've gone through the process, you know what to watch out for. Yeah, I learned a lot, man. Like my my price tag was crazy for manufacturing. <laughs> I was like, "Can we get a thicker paper with some texture, something that like looks more like watercolor?" They're like, "Yes, but it's going to be double." I'm like, "That that's okay." And then when you see the like total tallied up, you're like, "Okay." 
yeah i had that same experience like i was surprised at how much certain things cost and how much of a difference it would make for me to do this just little one little thing that will make it look so sweet you know what i was going to do nishant is the is the polaroids and and cutouts that you mentioned i wanted those uv coded so that they mm-hmm. would actually like have a a physical uh, depth to them and yeah that was like an extra $15,000 <laughs> like <laughs> Yeah, and then yeah, then the printer was like, "I don't, I don't think you want to do that. That's that's uh, maybe on the cover or something." Yeah, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. yeah. Uh, what's interesting to me is that suppose, and this is of course against the the way in which books are printed, but suppose you could do that for fifty copies, and it would be really difficult because they wouldn't do just a run for fifty copies, and it would be much more expensive at that. But suppose you could, you could flexibly charge for it. And that would be like your limited edition gold standard version, or let's say, let's call it the the Captain Tom cut yeah, of the book. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's on. That's the only compromise that that we made. What of of the original plan that I had? That was the only one where I'm like, okay, this is like financially a catastrophe if we were to UV coat individual pages in a book. <laughs> but that's that's okay. Yeah. Yeah, I guess uh, I guess what I really am curious about is now that you've got this book, what what are some other rewards that you felt from making it and putting it out that you didn't quite anticipate or visualize before? Hmm, that's a that's a tough that's a tough one to answer. Um, so I'm thinking of it in light of whether it motivates you to do more such work in like. Did you enjoy right. the returns of certain decisions you took? And does it make you excited for more such decisions going ahead? Yes. yes. So, so honestly, for me, the you want to talk about an ROI, like a return on investment of, of time and energy, the, the details that people noticed um, really meant the world to me because it's like, yeah, the artwork is done. The artwork is there that that's just something I'm sharing now and, and you like it or you don't, but um, you know, the physical aspect, the physical product itself is where I put all the extra little bells and whistles mm-hmm. and, uh, and to hear someone say, I, you know, I, I loved the the textured cover. I love that. It felt like a sketchbook I was flipping through. I'm like, cool. Awesome. So this format, this format worked, I, you know, the same way that we talked about an animation earlier of, of, using technology or art to convince people of of something that you're doing the fact that some people were convinced that they were flipping through a sketchbook was mission accomplished that was the primary goal of the physical mm-hmm. product and uh, that's a format that i would like to continue yeah and i absolutely maybe maybe it'll be totally destroyed because there'll be more pressure now <laughs> but, uh, i want to i want to continue this and and pursue it more aggressively as um as my art you know, forget about galleries and big paintings and stuff like that. I want to, I want to make, make and share sketchbooks. Yeah, yeah, so true. Oh, okay, I think there's construction above me. Thank God it didn't happen during our main conversation. <laughs> uh, but I'm, I'm thinking also about. So this is Palestine. It's an exotic subject. It's a part of the world that a lot of people, uh, especially in your uh, Canadian audience, for example, North American audience, it's a part of the world that a lot of people don't have visual references too so there's a lot of exotic interest in the subject Um, but what I've really found interesting in my own work is that people you have two kinds of customers I'm sure there are more but broadly speaking 
one who bought your book because of the subject matter and the other who bought the book because of the author that's because it's your work and they would buy anything that you would make these these be this this group of people so it's not just that subject matter uh, have you have you felt have you had this kind of idea about the kind of people who are buying your book and does it make you think about like i i would think it would be more empowering then to think that any of your work could be a book yeah it's uh i definitely saw that i mean because i sold them all myself i i can see everybody's um name and address and and for with a lot of them i had back and forth mm-hmm. emails like personal emails you know um so i i got to know some of the people buying it and, and yeah i did notice that there was a demographic of people that are just interested in the work no matter what it is and there were people like you said that got it because of their connection to palestine and the subject matter and though the people who are connected to it for the subject matter are the people that reached out and i had a a more intimate personal connection to you know they would they're the ones that would take the time on instagram or through email to tell me their story and how you know a lot of people are living in the diaspora of, um um from the palestinian exodus from the 40s 40s 60s and 90s and a lot of palestinians have never even been to palestine or can't go so that that was an interesting story or an interesting takeaway from a lot of folks I talked to, they were like, this is beautiful because it's the only way that I've, I've ever gone back mm-hmm. home. And, um, and yeah, you, 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 interesting. You brought up that like, it's, it's an exotic subject matter. That's actually something that I was conscious of trying not to do while there is exoticizing. Um, so like I, I wanted, you know what I mean? Like um, my mentor, Dave, who I, who I showed an early, early copy of the book design to, he was like, Oh, like, what's with the guys like smoking on the cover and drinking coffee? Like, don't you want to do like a monument Mm -hmm. or like something? I was like, that wasn't, that wasn't Palestine to me. I'm like monuments and history was secondary to the people living, living their lives, you know, going about their day. Right. And I, I was just going to say exactly that, actually, that the fact that you didn't feel the need to do, the ob- let's say quote unquote obligatory scenes of of the place that's what makes it less exoticized it makes it authentically your experience authentically the sketchbook experience and it doesn't come across as that kind of exploitation yeah like men men smoking and drinking coffee was was my my palestinian experience as far as culture <laughs> goes so so that's that's the cover yeah you're right yeah um, now, uh, I, I do this almost like an evangel- evangelist because uh, there are these things that I like, even self-publishing for that matter, because I'm doing it, I want more people to do it. Mm-hmm. And if with the idea that the selfish, re- firstly, the, the the evangelist part of me is that it's good for you, you should do it, it will save your life. But the selfish part of me is that the more people do it, the more ideas exist. And then I can steal those ideas and put them in my own yeah. work. And the, together we create this market for this kind of stuff. So in that same spirit, <laughs> I want to tell you about a few more things that I'm doing yeah. that I, I personally would love to be uh, a reader of your work in that sense. And I think it might be useful, but of course, depends on the kind of time you have and the kind of uh, whether it's something you're even interested in. So uh, have you thought about this uh, concept called the 1000 true fans model? Never heard that before. Okay. <laughs> So uh, for people who create content on the internet, there's this 
idea generally that you can make money on and this was used to be true until five years ago it was very true and until two years ago it was the reality that if you want to make money on the internet you have to go viral you have to be seen by millions of people and then certain people are interested in giving you money and those certain people are brands or companies that are related to your work sponsoring you so your audience could be vast but the source of your money is corporations and companies interested in advertising through you or paying uh, you for youtube ads in case you have billions of youtube uh, subscribers so the source of revenue is still a corporation even if your audience is your audience authentic audience but in the 1000 true fans model and this is what the creator economy is kind of resting on the idea is that you don't need millions of fans what you need to get at other 1000 true fans and in this uh, it's the era of microtransactions and supporting people using patreon etc etc is kind of making this possible your true fan is defined as somebody who would pay you hypothetically 10 dollars a month or 100 dollars a year so if you think about it as 100 dollars a year uh it would mean with a thousand people it's a six figure salary and the idea then is how do you create a product that's worth 10 dollars a month or 100 dollars a year for 1000 people mm-hmm. with the idea that say 5% or even being more conservative 2% of your online social media audience is your true fans the people who will given the right product be willing to give you 10 dollars a month so the 1000 true fans model is the idea that you should rejig reorient your work in order to create the thing that is going to reach you to a big audience but is going to be of that particular value to 1000 people mm-hmm. who should be enough for you to sustain your work and to keep doing it that's very interesting so yeah I'm doing that with respect to my podcast creating something that is of interest to the urban sketching community but hopefully it l- brings those 1000 true fans to me and by doing this again and again I get better at it and I get better at making that product that works for 1000 true fans the thing that they'll pay me the money for the book is also part of that being independent with my book is a big part of that because if they are my true fans they want what I want to make they don't want to they don't want what quarto or uh, penguin or some other publisher wants me to do so satisfying those true fans i have to do i have to execute my vision so it's empowering in a lot of ways if you are the kind of person who does not shy away from empowering themselves who likes to take creative challenges and executing their own ideas it's a very empowering time in history because there's never been before a time where you could be supported by small donations all over the world of just such a small set of people like 1000 paying people is actually a very low number to think about especially if you are capable of selling 200 books you're capable of getting a little bit a quarter of that money from five times those that number of people it's an incredible way from the sounds of it to sustain being able to do the the authentic kind of work that you're doing right and you don't have to keep like for me i'm sure it's the same for you it's it's so hard because to do a project like this it's like you have to take time off work keep paying your bills invest uh time and money into the product itself and um and then hope that it hope that it does well if you, if you create something at the end of it right it's um it's it's there's there's a lot of risk involved and um it's it's difficult to sustain 
Um, but yeah, dude, no, that, that sounds, that sounds really cool. I, I, stuff like that. I, I love hearing about because yeah, like I was saying, it's like that Palestine book. I don't know. I don't know what, what, what your book cost you, but it, it cost me over, over 20 grand. I, I think in your case, uh, the, 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 the format of it, like if I made mine is eight by eight and I think yours is maybe eight by 11 or eight by 10 eight or something. By 11, yeah. Yeah. I think, I think mine would have become 1.5. Mine was roughly 10,000 us dollars. Everything counted. So in Canadian, that's probably uh, 12, 13. Right. So my landed cost, my landed cost of producing the book was, uh, was just over 60 per, per unit. But then, um, mm-hmm you know, um, shipping, packaging and donation. Like I donated all, all proceeds and mm-hmm. uh, so that I kind of calculated into a final landed cost. So sorry, not landed cost. My landed cost would have been, um, just a little bit more than what I charged for the book <laughs> and, mm-hmm. and the, um, the like manufacturing cost was a lot less, but, um, yeah. How, how much it, did you charge for it? I charged 115. 115 all right and i think maybe your costs were also higher because you printed 200 and if you'd done 400 the if per I'd done unit 400, cost it would have been significantly less um if i'd done different paper like everything um mm-hmm. cover material but yeah it was mostly the paper the paper that the paper and the low uh the low numbers that that did yeah it. yeah like even if we think of it linearly like if 200 people are willing to pay 120 dollars for a book then at half that price, you should at least have double that number of people being ready to ready to buy your work. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You so that's so. that's a that's a pleasing number to think of uh, that four hundred or five hundred or possibly more people like you can't know until it's available for them to buy how many exactly it is are willing to pay that kind of money for a product. And so then I think as a as a as a cre- uh, so yes uh, my recent conversation with the last guest we termed ourselves creative entrepreneurs rather than as artists or illustrators that's that's not bad <laughs> yeah like because she does art and she does fine art and urban sketching and teaching and youtube so it's a lot of different skills coming together and i was telling her and which is part of what i wanted to tell you also is that so in the early internet there was a lot of respect for blogs and things because social media didn't exist. And blogs was how we kind of interacted with people, how we discovered people's work. So it was a big deal. And then with social media, it fell away. But now we've reached a point where people are sick of social media. And what's interesting is the way that email and newsletters and blogs have come back. Mm -hmm. So uh, one of the things I'm noticing is that people really like to hear from the creators whose work they like so another idea that i was thinking that as any independent i think every independent creator should do this is that they should have a newsletter that they write periodically in which they sort of just ramble about their and this uh, a, a ramble versus a polished finished product is really key like that's a great that's a great point to make um yeah, because I so so the the fountain pens that I use um, are, are made by Pierre Miller. He owns uh, the Desiderata Pen Company. Now he hand makes every single one of them, and he has a newsletter where he just like sometimes he'll let you know that there's a pen coming out. Other times he's just like it's like a thought, whatever whatever the the, the exp- English expression is, just like his his thoughts on on mm-hmm. a on a current political climate, for example. You know. Mm-hmm. 
and and I love reading them and because I, I admire this guy and yeah that's that's uh, that's a very yeah. interesting point yeah so I think I think it's worth looking at and of course I'm saying this without any clue about your time commitments but I think it's an interesting direction that things are taking and the more number of people that are doing it it's fine like there is very little precedence to these things so there's not a lot of information to fall back on about what works what is needed and you know what you need to do in order to get success but that's the bad news and the good news is also the same thing that there's very little precedence to fall back on so there's no Id- fixed ideas of what works and what is a good thing right yeah yeah i like that it keeps it yeah cuz like for me the thing that i have a hard time with you know being an artist that that uses social media i have a hard time centering it around myself and like talking to like a an audience you know like even like i call it the hey y'alls mm-hmm. <laughs> it's like the hey everyone i'm just here to here to whatever to all of you and and like just kind of sharing over sharing mm-hmm. um yeah, that, that's just not something that I'm interested in doing. You know, it's always about here. here is the picture, take it or leave it. You don't need to know who my parents are or what pets look like, even though my cat has been featured. Yeah, like I I like to I like to be selective about what I share with people. And, and yeah, it's hard to know. It's like, okay, what's the next step for sustainability? It's like everyone's going towards YouTube. And because like you were saying, going viral on YouTube and doing instructions and giving stuff away and and it's nice, but like, I'm not really interested in becoming a TV personality. I'm interested in continuing what I'm doing, making it sustainable and sharing it, you know, not mm-hmm. just like, hey, exactly right. I'm just having my cereal today. And uh, <laughs> here's my drawing, you know, like that, that there's a, I, I, I'm interested in a select amount of people who do that, that I, whose content I consume, but I'm not interested in being that person. And um, exactly. So I I love what you said, because essentially what it comes down to is I'm interested in doing what I want to do and nothing else. Mm-hmm. And I absolutely agree with that. So one of the big uh, conflicts I'm facing right now is that podcasts of the type that of the con- the field that I'm in are visual because this is art. And a lot of people post stuff on YouTube and entire podcasts are video podcasts on YouTube. Joe Rogan, for example, is so big because you can see him talking and it's a visual presence and it would work. It would do me a lot of good to do that, but I simply do not want to do it. I don't want to have my face plastered on YouTube. I don't want to have to think about my background looking attractive enough and me wearing the best t-shirts or whatever. It's it's just a level of a level of production that I don't want to do. I want it to be about my voice and the conversation I have. So I'm taking that hit on potential uh, re- uh, listenership in order to do what I want to do. And this is exactly the beautiful part of where we are today, that you can do what you want to do on your terms. And 1,000 fans means you don't have... So I was, I'm thinking about the hey, y'all idea. Mm-hmm. One reason to do that is that you're thinking about the vast, infinite possibility of who might see your post. Mm-hmm. It's thousands of unnamed people, potentially new people who come in. So you at least I do, I feel a certain degree of vulnerability about, do I want to open up? Like, I don't know who's looking at this and what they'll think of me. I don't want to, I don't want to talk about my personal life to, yeah. I don't know who. It's true. It's like, you don't need, yeah, I, I I feel the same way. It's like, I don't need a bunch of strangers um, getting into my psychology and my mood. It's, it's about either I have a drawing to share or don't. 
and when I don't, um, I don't know. I'm I'm gonna take a few weeks away. <laughs> yeah, I I would put it in those exact words for myself as well. Like that's exactly how I feel, and um, it reflects in the in the very uh, unstable nature of my captions. Sometimes I just feel like I don't want to tell you anything. Here's my drawing. Here's five hashtags, and that's it. Like I don't even want to talk to you. And sometimes I have long captions, which I'm sure nobody reads. But I do it just because uh, in that moment I felt like doing it, and then I feel terrible as soon as I hit the post button. Thinking <laughs> about imagining all these ways that these people are exactly this getting into my psychology, and I don't want them there. So this is sort of what I'm countering with my newsletter. So the newsletter is and the podcast, it to some extent, simply because of the format that I've got, it cannot be lightly consumed. So Instagram is a medium which is for surface level engagement. People are scroll. People are there to scroll. Asking them to hold on more than three seconds is unfair because that's not why they why they opened Instagram. They came here to scroll. But a podcast in which episodes are typically two plus hours means that anybody listening to me knows that they this is the kind of time I want from them, and they can't interact back. Like they, they, there's no like button, there's no comment button. They can't interrupt me because I'm not doing this live in front of an audience as a lot of podcasts do. So it's an invi- uh, and the newsletter and the podcast work in a very similar way in that you have accepted the terms of our engagement. You have invited me into your inbox by clicking the subscribe button, or you have decided to listen to me and another person talk for two hours in your ears without the possibility of you interjecting. Yeah. So those terms of engagement mean that we have accepted a term of deep engagement. You will really consider my ideas because you can't immediately react to it. And the reason why we have such surface level interactions is that Facebook and Instagram incentivize. Participation. Mm-hmm. So, before anybody reacts to what we uh, thinks about what we say, they are formulating their reactions to it because they have the possibility to do that so quickly. They have the possibility to leave a nasty comment. They have the possibility to swipe away, for example, or dislike or retweet you on Twitter and say something shitty. So they're always thinking about it mm-hmm. before they are really considering our words. So these few avenues now newsletter being one and podcast being another are avenues of deep and true engagement as i see it and the only people who will subscribe or will bother to put in the effort to open your emails are ones who actually do want to hear exactly what you want to say mm-hmm. that changes the equation for me and i feel more comfortable opening up on my newsletter because i know that this is only that nobody needs to read this because there's no incentive around you reading my like it's it, i can't be clickbaity because there's no incentive to be clickbaity right. what will i gain like i i'm not getting likes on this if you want me in your inbox i'm here otherwise you can unsubscribe and i'm gone so incentives from my end are genuine incentives from their end are reduced to also genuine interaction and that makes the whole game completely different mm-hmm. no i i love that i love that that's a very very good way to look at it yeah yeah and and it, it introduces like um well, the fact that there aren't there's no possibility for a public comment um makes for a more intimate one-on-one interaction with somebody right if somebody wants if if you've touched somebody or or moved somebody or upset somebody they're going to personally email you it's not just you know 
a, uh, a, a, a comment for the whole world to see. And uh, <laughs> Exactly. They can't be grandstanding. There's nowhere to grandstand. No, I love that. I, actually, yeah, the, it, I, until you said that, I just never even considered it. Because, yeah, like I do, even for, for me, you know, I get, I get a lot of common questions on Instagram and then I get the, and then I get the same questions. Every time I post, somebody asks me what pen I use and what, <laughs> what, what colors, what colors I use. And I'm like, but I said that yesterday. Didn't you read right. my response to that? I'm like, of course they didn't. Who, who the heck goes back and reads like if they, if they saw it, then I should be worried about who that person is. Right. Exactly. <laughs> like, right. like a newsletter, for example, it's like, let me share my palette this month and my tools. Uh, let me share, a, te- a technique that I picked up that that really helped me, you know, like wicking using uh, using toilet paper to wick ink excess ink off the page. You know, that's mm-hmm. people always ask like, "What's that like white thing you're like poking it with?" I'm like, "Oh, that's I'm sucking up excess ink with a rolled piece of toilet paper." Like, "Wow, genius!" I'm like, "That's <laughs> <laughs> that's all stuff that that could easily be shared." And just um, you're right, create create a, a more intimate engagement with people who actually want to learn from you and hear what you have to say and and whether that turns into a a monetary return on investment or not it's it's relationship building and community building and that's you know based off of the three-hour conversation we just had i think is is at the forefront of what we do it is it is um community and socially oriented right Right. And exactly in terms of this conversation. So anybody who just heard what you just said right now has already heard three hours of us talking to each other yeah. and has then subscribed to my insider podcast and is then listening to this bonus portion of it. On top of that, they yeah. really, really care about us. But uh, so I, I want to recommend a, a newsletter to you, which I think is kind of relevant in your field. And really? I think you'd really enjoy it as in terms of giving you some ideas for maybe how you can also express these these things that you're doing. It's called animationobsessive.substack.com. And uh, you can subscribe to them. They're really great. They're not an animation studio, I think. What they do is they talk to people who are in this business. Oh, cool. And they have really in-depth uh, conversations and revelations to share and i've really enjoyed it so i think yeah i think it will be really interesting to you thank you yeah Yeah. all right i think i think we've spoken for really long and both of us should get back to regular life now yeah yeah anyone (laughs) listening will know yeah well thank you so much nishant um this this was awesome i i honestly i feel less like we did a podcast interview and more like two two old friends chatting this has been awesome 